Good morning and welcome to another episode of the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast with myself, Dr. Andy Matheson. So uh, today we're just going to talk through some articles on dementia, which sometimes feels maybe a bit of a drift away from sports nutrition. But what we're really thinking about here is do we need to be bearing things in mind or thinking about particular things when we're talking with our older athletes? And certainly if they're older athletes who have concerns or family histories where where there is uh, dementia running in the family. So the first article that we're going to look at is to do with coffee and caffeine and tea. And it's uh, an article about their impact on dementia. So Um, We're all pretty comfortable with recommending coffee and tea to our athletes and um, a lot of it will be personal preference. It's obviously added, caffeine's added into a lot of the supplements that that people may well already be using. So the the first sort of article that we were uh, going to look at is um, one from one of the biobank studies. Now, I'm sure you can sort of remember this of Biobank. Uh, we've mentioned it before. It's a UK cohort, um, prospective cohort study that they started looking at uh, in 2006 and followed to 2010. And there's a sort of steady stream of articles coming out from that data looking at what the long term effects of various things that were measured in the diet and the impact as time's gone on, on uh, things such as sort of cardiovascular health, and in this case, risk of vascular stroke, vascular dementia. In short, uh, what they found was that two to three coffee a day in tea or coffee was associated with lower risk of stroke and lower risk of dementia. Um and a lower risk of post-stroke dementia. So what do we know about coffee and caffeine? We, we know it seems to improve endurance performance, whatever mechanism that might be, whether it's um, improving fat metabolism, impact on the ions, lots of, we're not sure about that, but it seems to improve endurance performance. It seems to improve cognitive function, especially in team sports and performance linked to that. It seems to improve glucose uptake. And here we've got a, a, a nice study just saying, actually, if people are worried about long-term impacts of drinking regular cups of coffee, two to three a day, Actually, this is something showing that's going to reduce the risk of vascular stroke, ischemic stroke, and vascular dementia. For those that are worried about other causes of um, dementia, so Alzheimer's, the the second study that we then looked at was looking at that, um, and it's an Australian sort of imaging biomarker and lifestyle study where they took a, a cohort of. Uh, 230 normal older adults and followed them over quite a while, 126 months. Um, And over that period, they monitored uh, them with sort of scans, in particular um, looking for uh, sort of amyloid accumulation and the development of Alzheimer's. And again, what they seemed to find was that coffee intake was a protective factor against Alzheimer's disease. 
and coffee consumption seem to slow cognitive decline and amyloid accumulation. Now, uh, there is an element that this is probably a little bit away from where most of our, our athletes are or most of the work that we do with, with younger athletes. But certainly in the older athletes, I think it's good to be aware of these things. And in, it's sometimes useful to explore what with, with our older athletes, what are their longer term concerns? They may well have a feeling and understanding that doing high performance sports as they get older has a lot of benefits but might have some disadvantages and might have some impact on their health what are, what are they worried about in particular as, as a sort of aside there were moving away from the sort of nutrition side of things there were a couple of other very interesting uh articles that i saw uh this week looking at dementia again and, and again just Sometimes you kind of step back and you think, "Oh, okay, uh, this is a this is a complicated subject." And both of these were ones that um, really highlighted that. The first was uh, as having cataracts removed seemed to reduce the risk of dementia by thirty percent. Now, a, a few different mechanisms were proposed by the authors, but just uh, what a it's an incredible study. Um, they think it might be to do with uh, how um, blue blue light can impact cognitive function and Alzheimer's disease, but clearly going to be a bit more work on that. And the other one, which sort of slightly flies in the face of what what we really understand, uh, it, it maybe is an argument for being a bit careful with taking too much from cohort studies and prospective sort of population-based studies, was it was also in JAMA Internal Medicine, and it was uh, just over 17,000 participants um, looking at their systolic blood pressure and their risk of dementia and, and rather than it just be a sort of a straight line showing that higher blood pressure led to more dementia which is what we would kind of think of your higher your blood pressure the more likely you are to get uh, sort of vascular problems small infarcts develop vascular dementia actually there was a u-shaped curve um, with the uh, lowest risk at 185 millimetres of, of mercury. So what does that mean? Who knows? Um, and it'll be interesting to see what, what comes out from that and what the, uh, what the next step in it is. So a, a difficult area, um, dementia, and, and one that may well be something that our athletes as they get older, start to think about. But a very nice look here at what the impact of coffee and tea might be uh, and, and reassuring that something that we might be pushing on our athletes and trying to get them to do won't, won't be having a long-term impact um, with regards to dementia. Or if it does, it will be a positive one. The next bit I was going to pop onto was uh, an area which, again, it was listening and, and reading a, a podcast with Professor Tim Spector that uh, I came across uh, they were discussing ApoE genes and it's something I hadn't really dug into myself for a while and whilst uh, I was sort of comfortable with the sort of the, the rough idea of ApoE and like most people had kind of had it in my head as as this uh, sort of dementia gene, uh, it, it, I thought it was probably a useful time to 
to dig into it and just remind myself of, of seeing, seeing some things. Um, and then again, uh, how might it impact the advice that we're giving people? And came across a, a sort of interesting article in, in Nutrients uh, talking about it. So the um, what is the ApoE gene? So ApoE is a protein um, and it's one of the particles that's involved in transporting different fats around the body. Um, now it's also involved in other processes within the body. It's known to have uh, an impact on sort of processes in the immune system and thought processes within the brain. For a while, we've known that there's different uh, genes that exist. The majority of people have the ApoE3 gene um, and often get referred to as ApoE3 slash E3. About 25% of people have a different gene. So rather than E3, E3, they're E3, E4, and that's about 25% of people. About 2 to 3% of people don't have any E3 gene, they have an E4 gene and an E4 gene. Now, the people with E4, E4 are known to be at higher risk of a number of conditions. Now, that includes Alzheimer's, and that's often where people have first heard about the ApoE gene, but also cardiovascular disease and the metabolic syndrome. Uh, and you might have heard uh, it's of numbers of sort of 30 to 40 percent increased risk of cardiovascular disease if you've got this ApoE3, E4 or E4, E4 gene type. And there's lots of ongoing research into this. The, um, the sort of first time I kind of came across it was uh, probably similar for a lot of people was 2017 when there was an article in Nature um, and talking about the metabolic syndrome and actually how if people had this slightly different ApoE genotypes, they weren't the E3, E3, but they were one of the 25 or 28% of people that either had E3, E4 or E4, E4, actually maybe we ought to think about them as a slightly different group. And whilst most of the advice would be pretty similar, stop smoking, talk to your doctor about uh, cholesterol lowering drugs if, if if that's if that's something you're interested in what uh, that nature article said at the time is maybe certain diets wouldn't be appropriate for people with this genotype now at the time I think uh, what I read into that and what they were sort of suggesting in that article is actually maybe we need to be careful with people on a high fat diet if they have this genotype. Um, the other thing that people sometimes mention is maybe people on this with that, that, that genotype need to be increasing the sort of polyphenols and antioxidants they get in because it appears that they're not as good at, at using them for want of a better, better phrase. Um, and I hadn't really thought about it much more since then but Again, coming back to this idea about what is the long-term impact of the diets that we recommend for people and we start the athletes on, it was interesting to read in uh, this nutrients article that actually they seem to be going a, a very different direction. They seem to be saying that actually high-fat, low-carbohydrate diets were 
positively useful for people in APO E4, uh, APO E4 carriers or APO E4 E4 types. So the, the name of the article was Precision Nutrition for Alzheimer's Prevention in APO E4 Carriers. It was in Nutrients 2021 and the first author in Norwitz and last author Isaacson. And I think the, the, the most useful thing I found was um, just uh, so it, it just goes through some of the history of the, um, the genes and some of the sort of recent data. And then it just has precision nutrition considerations. And it just talks about the sorts of different diets, low glycemic index, low carbohydrate, ketogenic, um, and where we think they may link into preventing Alzheimer's disease and how this might link in for people that might be E4, uh, E3 or E4, E4. Uh, and as I said, the, the advice seemed to be much more pushing that it was very safe and sensible to be going for, for these um, uh, high fat diets, which was a bit of a switch from what I'd, I'd seen before. Um, but that what they're saying see, all seems to make sense However, this is very much a kind of data-free zone. There were no large trials. Um, and that, that's, I suppose, got to be the takeaway here is there's just a lot of expert opinion at the moment. So if you're someone that is aware, or if you've got athletes who are aware that they have this risk for Alzheimer's in the family, where they've had sort of their, their genetic typing done and they know they're sort of APOE4 uh, carrier or APOE4E4, and they want to talk about what is the safety of some of these diets you're starting on them on. It's a good place to start and be able to talk to them about what is and isn't known, but essentially that there's a lot more work needing done. One of the interesting bits on there, which I hadn't heard before, which was a, a nice one, and I haven't had a chance to dig out the paper, was just when in that paper it was talking about the Mediterranean diet, it was uh, talking about a, a study looking at Italian men with APOE4 who lived in Italy and had a Mediterranean diet compared to Italian men with, who were genetically similar but lived in the US and had a US diet. In the proportion that lived to an old age of 90 to 95 in Italy under the Mediterranean diet was the same as those without the APOE4 gene whereas in the US it was much reduced now that's again I'd have to I need to look into that paper but that seems to be relatively powerful to me suggesting that whilst this this gene's very important it is very controllable through nutrition factors so the the other way of thinking about this rather than being saying is it something to be careful when advising diet types is also is it something where if I know someone is concerned about Alzheimer's or has it running in their family and I'm advising them on, on some nutrition options now, I ought to be suggesting that a Mediterranean style diet higher in antioxidants and polyphenols and uh, maybe slightly lower carb and certainly lower processed foods is really important and it might be really protective. Um, Whilst reading around that and just trying to get my, my, my head in the, in the right space, I came across another interesting article just talking about this sort of personalised management of people when giving them low-carbohydrate diets and, and the different genetic variants that you might need to, to keep in the back of your head. And um, it was 
called Genetic Variants for Personalised Management of Very Low Carbohydrate Ketogenic Diets. It was in BMJ Nutrition Prevention and Health with and first author Ironica, last author Diagnostino. Uh, and it was a, a nice summary um, uh, of, of where the genetics and the genetics testing is and the SNPs, um, these single genetic changes or nuclear polymorphisms that you might want to, to be aware of just in case your athlete goes and gets some testing for it or comes to ask you about it. Um, so certainly a, a useful tool and a useful uh, resource for people that might want to just be able to say, and, and the answer is almost the same, always the same for these, there's not great data, this is what we know and what we think from the science that we do have. Um, and one, one just, uh, I suppose, what, what, why, what started all this off was listening to a Professor Tim Spector and reading a Professor Tim Spector podcast with a, a Dr. Gundry. Um, and it reminded me that actually it's been a while since I've kind of looked at what uh, Professor Spector's up to and I'm sort of aware that he the, the Zoe platform has been was doing a lot of work on covid and wasn't too sure if if everything else had slightly gone on on hold and uh, uh that isn't the case at all when i uh, got around to actually having having a look at it so most of you again might be aware of uh, professor specter um sort of written several very readable books um it's, it gives wonderful talks really interesting really easy to listen to and and has an incredible understanding of this of what's the impact of nutrition on our health um and, and very good at pulling in lots of different strands and Prior to get sort of being more interested in nutrition, he he ran the UK's sort of largest twin cohorts and was the sort of expert at saying, is this a genetic problem or is it something that's being caused uh, by a, another external factor? And he used the twins, huge twin cohort, to prove a lot of things. He's basically now doing that with nutrition and and. The PREDICT study is the first one that's worth really having a look at. If you go on the Join Zoe website, it will have a lot about it. Or if you want to sort of read the Nature Medicine article, it's Human Postprandial Responses to Food and Potential for Precision Nutrition with Sarah Berry, the first author, and Tim Spector, the, the last author. And what they do there is just in these 1,000 twins, they feed them all sorts of different things over a long period. And they just look at the changes in blood triglyceride, blood glucose, insulin, following identical meals, and then trying to figure out, is it genetics that, that change the way we process this food and who gets high sugar highs and who gets high insulin highs? Or is it to do with other things such as your gut microbiome? Uh, is it to do what's in the meal? Um, and that was this is predict one study. And as they move on, they do, they've got a few more predict studies looking at the timing of the meals, um, the impact on cardiovascular disease, uh, large, sort of larger studies done from home, not just using twins. Uh, the the, the, the sort of takeaway for me with the predict was um, how much of an impact the gut microbiome had um, when it came to postprandial rise in lipid levels it the gut microbiome had more of an influence than actually the meal macronutrients which which sounds crazy but just makes you think wow that, that we with 
once we get an understanding of the gut microbiome and once we're a bit further with that it will be so much easier to be able to advise our athletes and actually can we give precisions of uh, individualized nutrition advice when we still don't understand things that have such a big influence um, so anyone wants to know more just type in join zoe and go to the website and it's got a nice summary of the different predict programs and also some uh, work that they're doing at the moment um, and if people want to sort of get an idea of where precision nutrition is heading i think i'd always recommend that as a place to start is it's probably the gold standard for what what might be ahead right so uh, so that was um looking a bit more at kind of older athletes work or kind of longer term impacts of some of the things we recommend the next bit i wanted to move on to was a article in human kinetics journals and this was a we'll just touch on it briefly but it's a nice answer to a problem that uh, lots of us have had for a while so the paper was called defining training and performance caliber a participant classification framework and it was in the um, international journal of sports physiology and performance and it was a mckay uh, stellingworth with louise burke as the final author now, this was essentially setting out the standards for what do we call our athletes? Are they elite athletes? Are they world-class athletes? Are they just highly trained? And it's a problem I've had in the past where I've, I've sort of sent referrals in on people and had them dismissed as not, not being suitable for a certain clinic because they're not an elite athlete or they're not training at a high enough level. Uh, or when trying to sort of summarise data and say, well, this is going to be useful for, for these types of people. It, it, so it's nice just having a standard because before there was always a little bit of guesswork. We kind of knew what ev everyone meant, but there was a lot of fiddling around the edges. So this is nice. So now when I'm sending in those referrals or um, uh, trying to kind of say, well, this is who I think this will be be important for uh, at least I can say well here's the reference and this is what I'm basing it on and this is what I'm saying it's it's made it's gonna be great for these highly trained national level athletes um, etc so de definitely worth having a look at and I think for me or what what will I do what will it change I'll probably just print off the table and make sure I've got it to hand when I'm trying to answer that question that we all do for every paper which is what population was this paper looking at and what population am I trying to apply the findings to and who am I looking after um, the the last thing I wanted to talk about is uh, again not a, not a, not so particularly a nutrition thing but another really sort of nice uh, it was a nice a nice way of putting something I've struggled to for a while. So I was reading uh, an article on a, uh, it's actually a, a rowing website called Ludum. And it was by uh, a gentleman called uh, Alex Wolf, uh, who's a sort of an SNC coach and developer. And the, the, the reason I, I really enjoyed this was that often people will turn around or you'll get in discussions with colleagues and, and you'll realise that we, we're often quite method-based. Um, and when I say that, we, 
we get used to trying something for people. We get a bit of a success with it, and that's the method we use. And so you then almost find yourself in a little echo chamber of talking to other people who use that method a lot. So if I was a surgeon and I always, I like to do this operation laparoscopically, I'd read around doing it laparoscopically. I'd always feel that was the, the best way to do it, the way I was most comfortable with doing it. You find yourself falling into a little bit of a niche. Now, if you're a patient going to see a surgeon, you don't want the guy that only works in that little niche. If that's what you need, that's great. But what you really want is a surgeon that is able to do any way of doing that. I can open you up and operate like that. I can do it by robot. I can do it laparoscopically. And, and you want them then to choose the best option for you. Now, this um, uh, article, it's called A Fresh Perspective on Strength Training for Rowing, just talked about this idea of outcome versus method when trying to sort of help athletes and help people. Um, and, and it really feel fitted for me and, and, and sort of triggered some ideas for me for how do I explain to people why when they say to me what's best or when uh, patients chat or people chat to me in the gym and say what's best is it low carb is it high carb is it vegan is it this I always say well I don't know you yet well enough to give you an answer or we need to sit down and work things through um, what I'm trying to do there and is say actually it's these are just those are just tools in a toolbox and actually until I know what you're trying to achieve I can't even start to recommend something um, and now at least I've got a nice little way of describing it actually it's uh, I'm out trying to be outcome focused rather than method focused uh, it, Alex Wolf put a nice little um, uh, quote in there from uh, Einstein I'll just uh, just find it. If I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solutions. And that's really what we try and do when we're working in nutrition. What's the outcome you're trying to achieve? And then from that, I can think, well, what's stopping you get there? And what nutritional aspects are stopping you getting there? And what options do I have? What tools could I use to change that? Or what problems are stopping you getting there and what, which of those problems are impacted by nutrition tools might be a better way of putting it. Um, in my head, I started thinking about the phrase that there's lots of ways to skin a cat. Um, and funnily enough, I thought, well, it's odd. We, we come out with these sort of more complex ways of trying to say what we're doing but if someone said to you there's lots of ways to skin a cat and you were an alien from another planet you wouldn't say ah oh, what are they your first question would be why are you trying to skin a cat um what's the cat done to you uh what are you trying to achieve with it so it's odd if, if we get out of our little niches then this is obvious this is this is obviously how we'd approach any problem but uh, it's very difficult to do that when that's the sort of headspace you're in and that's where your comfort level is and that's that's what you're good at. So um, that's uh, that's everything for today. Uh, 
Thanks very much for listening in. Um, please do send any questions through on the on the uh, Facebook page. Um, any feedback uh, really appreciated. I'll pop the uh, details for those first two studies. I realise I didn't uh, didn't give you them them earlier on on the Facebook page as well. If you want to want to follow them up, I uh, hope you have a great day and get some super training done. Goodbye.